Welcome to Florence Talks, the podcast for care managers, owners and operators. I'm Dan Blake, and every two weeks we'll be talking to social care professionals to discuss topical issues and bring you tips and actionable insights that you can use in your care setting. Thank you for listening, and now let's jump into this week's episode of Florence Talks. Good afternoon, Anne. Um, uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Very excited today to uh, introduce Anne Thomas from Cornwall Care. She's the CEO there. We're going to talk about a really interesting topic, I think, which is all around how the care environment will change uh, in the future from a co- uh, post-COVID or with COVID, uh, especially in particular around trying to maintain a feeling of being homely, but but also maintaining a high standard of infection um, control. So it's a very it's an interesting topic, and it's probably one that um, you know we maybe a couple of years ago we wouldn't have thought we'd be having this conversation. So and like lo- lo- like many things, we probably there conversations that were going on that we probably don't think we'd be having. So before I kick off, though, be um, thank you, Anne, for coming today. I know you're very busy, so. Um, if you wouldn't mind just giving a, a few minute introduction on yourself, um, maybe explain your background and, and where you've got to where you are today, please. Oh, thank you very much. So um, as Dan said, I'm Anne Thomas. I'm the Chief Exec of Cornwall Care and I've been in post since October 2018. I'm a qualified nurse and um, I did my nurse training um, back in the 80s in London. Um, after I qualified, I worked in day surgery. Then I, um, But I remember my first... Um, you know, the, the first kind of in-school bit of training that we had where somebody from the community came in and told us all that um, we thought that the hospital was the be-all and end-all of everything. And we should remember that people spend 99.9% of their time in the community. And there we all were in our very posh, um, you know, London nurse uniform, working in a hospital, thinking we were brilliant. And um, we were, you know, very experienced because we were all 18 and 19. And we decided that that lady didn't know what she was talking about. So then I qualified, spent about six months in day surgery and have spent the rest of my career working in the community where, guess what? That's where people live and that's where their lives are. And that's what you, where you have to support people. So, you know, if I could go back in time and just shake her hand and say, yeah, she, she didn't know what she was talking about. That would be great. Um, after, I'd, after I'd done day surgery, like I said, I did some practice nursing, then got a love for diabetes. I was a diabetes specialist nurse for 10 years. Then I expanded that to long-term conditions. Then I went into middle management, so working for Primary Care Trust, um, working in Bath with, um, with consultants for services for people with long-term conditions. And then before I came to Cornwall, I was... Uh, the director of care for um, housing association in South Wales, where I looked up. My responsibility was anything that wasn't normal housing, so nursing homes, supported living, extra care, that kind of thing. Um, and then, um, say in 2018, I moved to Cornwall and um, became chief exec of Cornwall Care. We've got 16 care homes, the length and breadth of Cornwall, so it's quite a big area to cover. We also do um, dom care, community care, and some supported lifestyle services. Well, that's a huge range. I think um, I think maybe some you know this is not we don't like to get political on the on this podcast, but you know maybe someone can tell Matt Hancock that that there is something outside the NHS as well. Hey? Um, but maybe we'll talk, about, <laughs> talk about that later. Um, but yeah, it's a huge range. So um, what you know, you said you you moved into into sort of the community into care. What 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 was the thing that made you do that? You, know, you said you spent a few months in surgery, but then you made a jump. What, what, what happened? What, was there an event in your life that made you change? 
Well, initially it was, um, I, I gave up my hospital job because I had my first child and I wanted part-time work, which was in the community. And it was just when practice nurses were becoming a thing. They were doing all the health clinics that GPs were being paid for. I don't know if any of you can remember that far back, but people being paid to do health clinics. And so I became part of the um, community practice nurse team. Like I said, from there, I got a real interest in diabetes. I was doing a lot of work there and I met someone who was a diabetes specialist nurse and that's what made me think, ah, this is where I want to go. Wow. It's a good, uh, good, a good story, that one. Um, I guess, you know, before we dive into the, the main topic, which um, I know you're very passionate about and thank you for volunteering to speak about it to all the people that listen, but, um, you know, you're a you're, you're chief executive of a, I guess, medium-sized provider, it's probably fair to say. So what's, um, what's top of mind at the moment um, for you as a, as a care leader? Uh, so we're the, we're the biggest um, independent provider in Cornwall. And um, after the NHS, we're the biggest um, employer in Cornwall. Wow. And what's, what's important for us at the moment is how we exit from lockdown and how we recover from COVID. Um, what's the, we're looking closely at what the new regulations are going to be for um, care providers, what the new white paper is going to be. And um, fingers crossed that eventually we'll start to hear something about a revised approach to how social care is commissioned and valued. But in the meantime, we need to look after our workforce. We need to make sure that we learn the lessons from COVID and um, understand what we need to continue with and, and um, how we can support our workforce to do that. And making sure our workforce are okay, mental health support and helping them with their recovery. I think. It's very difficult when the rest of the country comes out of lockdown, but people still working in care homes and visiting people in their own homes are still having to wear all the PPE and actually for them, nothing's changed. And that's when they start to feel they're living in this kind of um, juxtaposed world where outside everyone thinks it's all fine, yet in our services, we've still got to behave, you know, in the same way that we have been for the last 12 months. So that's quite difficult for staff. Yeah, I can I can imagine. And how do you um, how how are you dealing with that as a as an organisation? What are you what are you practically doing to support your I guess your managers and your your staff? We're helping them to access as much of the um, mental health support as we possibly can. There's an awful lot of support out there, but unfortunately, it's quite um, it's quite disparate. So there's lots of online support people can have, but it's but it involves you being able to access things online and access things in in a time that works for you so if you're working a you know working full-time on the floor it's very difficult for you to access that so we're trying to find people's space to access support Mm. and we have um we've actually commissioned a couple of independent um counselors to go and spend time in some of our services to be there to talk to staff and make sure they're okay um as as well as now we are just doing the job ad job descriptions for two um two counsellors to take them on for the next 12 18 months because what we what we know from the what the experts are telling us is that the mental health repercussions of covid are going to come out now as we come out out of the intense kind of provision i think while people have got their adrenaline going and are focused on the intensity they're getting on with the job and then it's as things settle down people are going to need that support so we're making sure that we are um, actually providing that support um, ring fenced for our staff so that we can give them the right amount of help. 
Sounds amazing. I, I come from a, you know, I spent a few years in the military and I think the sort of the learnings about post-traumatic stress, are, are, there's probably lots of parallels there, I'd imagine. Um, um, although we got to come home after a few months and live our normal lives and your, your teams are still continuing with the challenges. So I guess it's even potentially even harder in many ways. Um, what about um, your managers and, and people People directly on the coal face as such. What are they? What are they? What are they thinking about at the moment? Have they got time to think, or are they? Um, are they still kind of very much in the, in the mix of it all? I think most of the time they're still in the mix of it all. We we had um, we had three nasty outbreaks of COVID at the beginning of the year, which which put our whole organisation back into business continuity, because now we've got testing. You know, having having access to testing as a double-edged sword. When we first when we were campaigning for testing, um, it was because we were really felt we were working in the dark. But of course, now you can test everybody once you know people are positive. You have to give them time off, and that causes huge problems with running the service and maintaining safety. So we we had three services that were struggling and that meant that other services had to bail them out. So yeah. they were, we're kind of in survival mode for the first for the first few weeks of, of the year. Um, as our managers come out of that, they're now having to look at the things that they did that didn't get done over the last um, last 12 months. So um, you know I think um, CQC weren't visiting uh, services where they are audits um, fell behind a little bit if I'm honest we focused on the most important things but some of the routine stuff didn't yeah. get done so what we're doing is a lot of um, kind of refocusing to see now how do we get back on top of everything and make sure that we're covering every everything off but continuing to be abreast of all the changes that are going we're still getting new guidance out now on what's the guidance for visiting what's the guidance for staff working between services it's changing all the time so we're just having to work really hard to keep on top of all of this new guidance. Oh, that's interesting. And um, you know, if you don't mind me asking, how do you how do you make sure you're looking after yourself? I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot for your teams, but you know, um, you don't have to answer this question if it's too personal. But you know, often people forget about the managers and the leaders of the organisation because they're worried about everyone else. Are you are you making sure that you look after yourself and your managers get looked after? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Yes, yeah, so I'm very lucky. I've got lots of support at home, but I am I am having coaching myself because when you are supporting others, you need to have somebody supporting you. Otherwise, you just kind of feel like a tent peg being hammered into the ground yeah, and right. working very hard to make sure that my managers access coaching and support. And I think um, that's difficult for us, I think, as a society, because we are we don't like to admit that maybe we're struggling or we may maybe feel that we need to be really struggling before we reach out for help. And so we've been trying to make sure that people feel it's okay to access help. And the kind of um, the advice that I've been adopting when talking to managers over the last couple of months has been very much reflecting on what they tell you when you're not when you're on an airplane which is put your own oxygen mask on before you try and help somebody else so that's what i've been trying to get people to think about yeah it's not very british is it, british is it to um you know to, <laughs> no. to admit admit you're struggling with anything so um uh i trying to maybe maybe slightly making it more slightly more positive um obviously we're we're starting to kind of imagine a post-COVID world or at least or at least living living in a post-COVID world or with COVID maybe probably more likely but um how do you think what do you think are the the big challenges there that you know when we when we go back to normal whatever normal looks like um what are you what are you what are you thinking the big big headline figures the headline issues are going to be there I think the headline issues are that we 
There are some really positive legacies from COVID. We made huge strides forward in, in um, for example, being able to talk to each other on Zoom and, and, and um, on Teams. Um, before COVID, if I wanted to talk to all of my managers, everyone had to drive to Truro so we could see each other face to face. And then miraculously, we've um, managed to adopt Teams and we can we can accept talking to each other like this and we yeah. can accept having GP consultations and um, contact with other healthcare professionals over a Teams um, sort of methodology. I think... For me, it's about really looking at what's all the positives that have come out of COVID and what can we hold on to. And I think there's a danger that people want to go back to normal, whatever normal was before COVID. Mm. And in some instances, that would mean going backwards. And I think it's really looking at what's been positive that we can hold on to. So talking to each other differently, working differently, and how the um, you know focus on on infection control, et cetera, has really been, has some positive outcomes. So while we've focused completely on it being for COVID, in the 12 months that we've been um, pushing the, the improved infection control, we've had no outbreaks of diarrhea and vomiting, and we've had no outbreaks of norovirus. So there's something good that's coming out of this that we need to hold on to. And I think that's what we've got to watch, that people don't just kind of relax back into this is how we used to do things and um, we lose some of the really positive progress. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true with the, the inspectors and the, the regulators as well. Yeah. Make sure they, um, they... So, so getting to the meat of um, what you want to talk about, again, thank you for raising this topic. So I think you're very passionate about your, um, your homes being homes, you know, homely places where people live, um, but you're kind of struggling at the moment, or not maybe struggling is the wrong word, you're thinking about how to maintain that homely feel but ensure that it stays clean and uh, infection-free as much as possible. So, yeah, I'd love to. I don't know much about this topic, so I'd love to hear what you're thinking, what you're what you're discussing, what you're trying, and um, you know, maybe some maybe some advice for those people out there with maybe in slightly smaller smaller home groups who don't have so such such big resources as maybe you might have. Um, any tips you might have for them? Okay, thank you. Yes, yeah, so. So it has been quite 12 months, hasn't it, going from um, our homes needing to be sort of homely clean and our cleaners needing to be people that, well, we're often people who were good at cleaning their own houses and we would we just train them up to clean a, a care home. And the focus of CQC and the focus of people who were coming to live in our homes would be, does this feel homely? Is it a nice homely environment? And then we've gone over the last 12 months to the point where you know, all staff are wearing masks and aprons and gloves and uh, goggles and visors and changing their changing their um, PPE between between individual residents. Mm. Sometimes residents having to be held in, you know, um, asked to stay in their own room because they're being isolated. Visiting has been really tough because it's been either through a window or in the garden and now we can do indoor visits but we have to think very carefully about what they look like and there was a lot of concern when we were starting to ask staff to wear masks about how we would how we would be able to support people with dementia people didn't think that people with dementia would be able to accommodate the idea of masks of of staff wearing masks it limits the amount of, um, you know, facial um, facial recognition, and we tell a lot about 
people how people smile and how they look and if that whole smiling area is covered off by a mask that's really difficult for people and so overnight it changed from being you know a very homely and relaxed environment to being absolutely focused on on infection control and clinical clinical need in order to save lives and and that was the you know that's very stark isn't it asking people not to not to have visits from their families because we're focused on life-saving activity and that is also a level that our staff previously hadn't been exposed to and hadn't been respected for so you know generally people who work in care homes or in care are described as unskilled labor force and they weren't included in any of the government's plans for protected labor and um, you know when we were coming out of brexit we weren't able to access um, staff easily from abroad and they won't be affected because they weren't part of the um, you know necessary workforce so over the last 12 months it's been a huge wake-up call as to not the skills that our staff have needed to have in order to um, keep people infection free and control the spread of of covid changing what they've had to wear and also we've had to declutter the homes i mean i i know that quite often people's rooms are filled with whatever it is they want to bring with them and you've been very much encouraged by cqc that if you can fit it in the room and still do manual handling and it comes and in my years of experience i've seen I've been amazed at what people can fit into their bedrooms. You know, there's a like um, a sideboard that belonged to great uncle, whoever that has to come with me wherever I come. Or this is my husband's chair. I'm not parting with that. That has to come with me. And all the knickknacks and paraphernalia that go with that. And then, of course, we, you know, we get into the middle of the whole um, coronavirus issue and you've got to keep work services clean and as many services clean as possible and almost go to a hospital-like environment which is very sterile and and removes all of those little bits and pieces so now we're having to think about what does that middle ground look like so we can't go back to full clutter because coronavirus hasn't gone away but how do we make it feel like someone's home and they're not living in a hospital room so that's taking some individual negotiation, really, with with families and with individual residents to um, work with them on, you know, what's what's okay to keep in the room. What for pictures, for example, can they be on the wall rather than on the sideboard? How do we make sure that um, things? If, if you brought in brought in a chair, that it's maybe it's not compliant with our infection control, but it means a lot to you. How do we make sure that we keep that as clean as possible? So there's a lot of negotiation going on and a lot more training for staff. So we've had to professionalize our housekeepers. We've had to put them on infection control training and hospital standard training program for understanding what cleanliness and what infection control looks like and a total review of um, you know how people clean rooms when they clean them what are touch points all of that kind of thing and we've um, we've likened it to people understanding what it's like if you were to put your hands in a pot of glitter you know if you've ever opened a a Christmas card or a birthday card that's got glitter on it and then for the next six weeks you're picking bits of glitter (laughs) out of your hair or off your face or so that's that's how it always, we always ends we, up on your cheek, doesn't it? Sometimes? It does. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly does. And we, we're sort of 
talking it through like that to show that, you know, because you can't see or smell COVID, that's how it will spread around, just like a bit of glitter would. Yeah, I think uh, the world so, needs more. The world needs more glitter, but uh, probably not more. Well, not yeah. more infection. But uh, I understand your point. So, what you're literally having conversations on an individual basis with people, and how are those conversations going? I mean, I imagine some people are quite receptive to it, and some people are really challenging. How do you how do you balance? Because it is some ultimately someone's home at the end of the day, I guess. It is. We've been. Um... We've been really fortunate. Our managers have really kept a close relationship with all of our residents and with their families all through this time. We've had very few families um, cross with us about the lack of visiting and, and they've been incredibly patient and understood that it's all about trying to keep the person that they love um, safe. And so we've been so been in constant conversation with all of with all of our families and our residents. And most of them are being very understanding. There's a few people who would like to keep things and we're having to, you know, negotiate or maybe have this thing for a little while and then swap it for something else. There's mm. always a there's always a struggle if rooms are very small of how can you keep everything you want, plus we can still make sure we've got enough room to do manual handling and things sure. like that. So it's always a negotiation. But actually, because we've done it very carefully, very gently, and it's been very person-centered, we've had um, most people are very happy to, to do what they can because event, at the end of the day, everyone just wants people to be safe. And we are, sounds a bit dramatic, aren't, doesn't it? But we are talking about life and death here. If it's full of clutter and we can't Definitely. keep it clean, then the COVID is going to spread around the home. And do you think the regulator will be on your side in six months, 12 months time? I think they will be. I think um, we've just had letters now to say that inspections are going to restart. Yeah. And I think the regulators are going to have to rethink what homely environment means in a, in a, in a post-COVID world where we're trying to keep people safe. And they'll have to redefine that and work with us in order to, um, in order to reach a happy medium. I think, you know, as long as we do it in a sensitive way that doesn't sound draconian and we, we explain it on an individual level, yep. and I think it'll be easier with new people coming into the homes. But um, as long as we can demonstrate it's done on a person-by-person -person basis, I think we will have the support from CQC because I can't see how they would push back on, on, on not managing a risk that, say, at the end of the day does mean that we could lose people. No, definitely. And for the smaller providers out there that I guess they maybe they're small owner operated or maybe just a, a manager who are still in the middle of the fight, the firefights, so to speak. What, what are your sort of top tips, top tips for them there? How can they make sure that the stuff you've imparted amongst your teams, what would you recommend they start to think about around this topic now if they haven't really given it much consideration? I think there's several things. Look for the free online training. There's lots of free online training that's really good quality that you can access. You don't have to make it up for yourself. You don't have to, um, you don't have to invent it or worry about its, um, worry about its credibility because there is lots of really good um, training out there. Um, and the other thing I would suggest that <clears throat> which which we're doing is just, you know, every day just find one or two people and just watch them. Do they understand about washing their hands properly? What did they touch? And then what did they touch after that? Because people do think they're doing it right and they're doing their very best to do it right, but they don't realize sometimes that the, 
you know, did you touch that and then you touch that and therefore, you know, now we've got a problem with, with contamination. Um, we really, we um, really went back to basics and we do, um, we do hands, hands check at the beginning of every shift. We do bare below the elbows check at the beginning of every shift to make sure that everybody is complying. Um, we, we've asked our, our staff to come to work in their own clothes and change into their uniform when they arrive. And we have taken, we have picked up the, the washing of uniforms. Most homes do okay. have um, um, industrial size washing machines. It's not a big chore to, to wash the uniforms yeah. and tumble dry them. But I think it's focusing on the basics. Don't worry about the big stuff. If you focus on did you watch that person wash their hands? Is everybody coming in bare below the elbows? Are people's uniforms clean? Just focus on the basics. And that, to my mind, has made all the difference. And are people quite receptive to that feedback? If you, know, if you see someone who's maybe not doing something, not, not following best practice, maybe by accident, are they quite receptive to that kind of encouragement or feedback? Or do people react negatively at all? Well, it's always it always depends how you tell people, doesn't it? Oh, but right. I think what's what we've been, you know, COVID has enabled us to have those conversations in maybe a stronger way than than before, and people now know the consequences of not getting it right. So again, our our, our managers have learned how to do that in a gentle but insistent way, and most of the time the feedback is very positive. People just genuinely don't un don't understand sometimes, and like I said. People don't come to work to do a bad job and they think they've got it right. And, and they've never had to think about infection control at this kind of level before. You know, just clean has been enough. Yeah. And now we are looking at proper, like I said, hospital standard infection control, which is a change of headspace. Mm. So it's about professionalizing and, and helping people understand that that's the level that they're working at now. And we are, we are, um, bringing in more housekeepers so that we can make sure we've got more resource. But it is, it is about professionalising what it is our, our staff do and making sure they get recognised for that. Fantastic. And just the last couple of questions. Um, if there's a few people um, dialled in and watching, if they want to ask a question, then they can use the Q&A function. And I'm sure hopefully Anne will be prepared to listen to answer a few questions. But um, just before, as we're wrapping up, so, you know, it's been a very very busy year probably looking for another very busy year lots of lots of um the, the, the light has been shone onto care maybe that how it hasn't in the past so anyone out there thinking about getting into care maybe they're a nurse maybe they're not even in the sector what's your uh what's your what's your thoughts from your experience and especially given the context of the world we live in today I would say it's important that we shout loud and proud about what happens in care um Social care desperately needs nurses who want to come and work in a in a area where skills are growing and you have the opportunity to work in a more autonomous way and have more responsibility and scope for your own leadership than perhaps you would have in the NHS. And I would urge nurses to think about a career in, in social care. But also for people who want to think about um, a non-nursing career in, in social care. Um, what, as you said, it's shone a light on what happens in social care and the opportunity for more and more specialism in the community. The, the demographic need for good care in the community is only going one way and that's up. And the, the um, promise of the white paper looks at much more partnership working. And I think it's given us a real springboard to get 
people who work in social care recognised as professionals and recognised as equal to the NHS. And we need to keep going with that message. Great. And um, and it wouldn't be it'd be unfair. You've, you've given up your time kindly. But, you know, how, how if people want to know more about Cornwall Care or, you know, are you recruiting at the moment? Where should they where should they go? What should they what should they do? Well, we always, Cornwall Care is always recruiting. We always need new carers. So if you wanted to email me directly and then I can um, forward it on to my HR department. So that would be Anne.Thomas. Anne's got a knee on it, please. If you have a name that short, you need all your letters. So um, <laughs> Anne.Thomas at cornwallcare.org. Well, you don't get too many CEOs uh, handing out their email address uh, to, to the public. So uh, it shows a lot about the organisation you're obviously running. But, but Anne, um, you know, I think you said you were going to go surfing this afternoon. So obviously you need to wrap up very soon. So, um, <laughs> Love <you know>. to. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for your time. It's a really interesting topic. Um, I, I'm really fa personally fascinated to see how it unfolds um, over the coming months and years. But, um, you know, your insights have been great. And hopefully those listening and, and, and who will listen will learn something from it. So um, thanks again, Anne. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Florence Talks podcast. If you want to know more about Florence, then check us out at florence.co.uk. Thank you. And until next time, bye for now.